This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. I would now like to uh, introduce our next two speakers, uh, Lucille Esrelu uh, and Lauren Libero. I hope I didn't pronounce that wrong. Um, so um, uh, Dr. Esrelu is the Senior Supervising Psychologist, Office of Statewide Clinical Services, Clinical Services Branch of the California Department of Developmental Serv- Services. And Dr. Libero is an autism program specialist at the California Department of uh, Developmental Services. Good morning, everybody. Uh, We're valuing the opportunity to join you uh, this morning and to update you about DDS's uh, California's uh, uh, Mental and Behavioral Health Services. So I am Lucy Ezralu. And as uh, was said, I am joined by my colleague, Dr. Lauren Libero. So neither Dr. Lieber or I have any relevant financial conflicts of interest for today. Um, Based on um, being with us in this session, we're hoping that you get some of the following information, that you learn about the relatively new category of eligibility uh, for California Regional Center services pertinent to three and four-year-olds, which we term provisional eligibility that you learn about updates regarding DDS's safety net initiative and related programs, and that you learn about funding opportunities that are related to mental and behavioral health. So just a little bit about our uh, department. DDS is the state agency responsible for overseeing the coordination and provision of services and supports to over 400,000 Californians who have a developmental disability. Services and supports are provided in accordance with the Lanterman Developmental Disability Services Act. And we invite you to visit the website where you will learn about the full array of programs and services that are available through DDS. So a little bit more about where we are situated within the state system. Uh, So DDS is part of the California Health and Human Services Agency, uh, which is, of course, part of the governor's office. And DDS operates uh, what we term state-operated services, which include a secure uh, treatment program at Porterville Developmental Center. Uh, We have a community facility and acute crisis homes among the array of state-operated services. So these state-operated facilities uh, provide 24-hour services designed to increase independence, improve living skills, and facilitate transitions into the community. Then DDS contracts with 21 regional centers. So DDS oversees the coordination and delivery of the services for Californians with developmental disabilities, through a statewide network of 21 community-based nonprofit agencies, which are known as regional centers. Regional centers provide assessments. They determine eligibility for Lanterman services. They offer case management, which is termed service coordination. And regional centers also develop, purchase, coordinate, and monitor the services in each person's individual 
program plan, their IPP. Regional centers do that by uh, working uh, in concert with local service providers who in turn provide direct services and supports. Uh, the director of DDS, uh, Director Nancy Bargeman. So we are under her leadership. So a little bit more about uh, you know, our services, and that is we are considered a lifespan service uh, provider. And you'll notice that uh, individuals, persons served, enter our system as early as zero through two in federally funded um, uh, uh, early start programming. It's a federal program which is administered through the states. And then ages three and four, uh, there is the possibility of provisional eligibility, which I'll be talking about a little bit more in a few slides. And then the vast majority of the people five in, uh, and older who receive Lanterman services. So just a little bit of a breakdown by category or diagnosis in terms of those who are Lanterman eligible. So most individuals, 53%, uh, are considered they have an intellectual disorder. 47% uh, are considered to be on the autism spectrum, although that uh, category is growing in size. Um, epilepsy accounts for about 12% of persons served. Individuals with cerebral palsy constitute about 11% of our population. And then we have category five for individuals who have needs for services and supports similar for, to the individuals with intellectual and developmental disorders, but have not met categories for ID, autism, epilepsy, or cerebral palsy. I do want to note that an individual may have more than one diagnosis that would make them eligible for Lanterman services. Um, you know, an individual may be on the autism spectrum and also have an intellectual disability or also have epilepsy or cerebral palsy. So there are any number of possible combinations that may account for duplicate counts in these categories. And in looking at persons served in terms of age, uh, we see that uh, there are about uh, 48,000 individuals who are eligible for early start. That's zero to two years through two years old. Most individuals who are Lanterman eligible are under the age of 21. However, we do have the highest single category. Uh, of individuals ages 22 to 31. And again, this is a lifespan service. Uh, so uh, provision of this, and these, uh, this data was based on July um, 2022 estimates. So at that point in time, uh, there was about, there were about 320 uh, or 30,000 individuals who were Lantman eligible. We now know that of uh, our entire population is now about 400,000. And we know now that uh, for provisional eligibility, as of January 2023, there are about 4,700 uh, children that have been made provisionally eligible for Lanterman. So DDS builds on what works to promote mental and behavioral health of persons served. And by that, I mean 
We look to promote the use of evidence-based practices and interventions. We promote local interagency collaboration. We identify and promote standards of care and offer technical assistance and consultation to regional centers. And through that, we emphasize inclusion, diversity, and equity in programs and service settings. So the way that DDS accomplishes all that is by partnering with regional centers and local stakeholders. So here's my opportunity to uh, talk a little bit more about a relatively new category in eligibility, provisional eligibility, which uh, we began in uh, July of 2021. And, and, and it is uh, an opportunity to bridge services for those three and four-year-olds who might not meet Lanterman eligibility using standard protocol, but clearly need some continued supports and services. So let's look at that within the continuum of services that are available uh, for eligibility. So Early Start, as you might know, covers birth to age 36 months. And you have to have a developmental delay that's measured at least 25% in one or more adaptive uh, skills area. And by the way, that is a lowering of the percentage from a previous 33%. So this allows us to serve even more individuals by identifying children who have a 25% delay. And those adaptive skills area include cognition, language, both receptive and expressive language skills, social, emotional, adaptive, or physical, and motor development. We also include vision and hearing. Uh, there needs to be an established risk or could be an established risk condition of known etiology with a high probability of resulting in delayed development or, or at high risk of having substantial disability due to a combination of biomedical risk factors which are diagnosed by a qualified professional. For the children that are three and four years old and might be provisionally eligible, their disability is not solely physical in nature. Uh, they have significant functional limitations in at least two major areas, life areas, self-care, receptive and uh, expressive language, learning, mobility, self-direction, etc. If you want to get more um, information. There is a an FAQ, uh, which there's a link to in the slide, which will be available uh, to you. So I want to make note of two things about provisional eligibility. The child does not need to have a diagnosis of autism, epilepsy, intellectual uh, disability, cerebral palsy. Uh, and instead of three areas of um, impairment, they can, uh, it's two major life activities that would be uh, delayed or impaired. So um, uh, for Lantaman eligibility, as you know, uh, the, it originates prior to age 18 and expected to be lifelong. And there would be three areas in which there are functional uh, limitations. So um, this really gives us an opportunity to expand services it allows us to bridge from early start to Lanterman eligibility. And regional uh, uh, centers are asked to reassess 
the child who's made provisionally eligible at least 90 days prior to turning five to see if they meet criteria according to standard eligibility protocols. So provisional eligibility is an example of building on what works. Uh, early intervention is an evidence-based approach that helps young children and their families build skills that will increase the likelihood of their success in school and in the community. And the extension of Lancherman eligibility to three and four-year-olds provides benefits to children who meet criteria for early intervention, but may not meet criteria for Lancherman uh, utilizing the standard protocols that are used to determine eligibility. And again, children are reassessed at age five to determine if they then meet Lanterman eligibility on the basis of those standard protocols that include IQ testing, adaptive behavior measures, and getting psychosocial background. At this point, I'd like to turn uh, the presentation over to my colleague, Dr. Lauren Libero. Thank you. Um, so one of the largest um, initiatives we have at the department that's focused around mental and behavioral health is our safety net initiative. Um, and uh, the safety net is really the department's commitment to strengthening and uh, developing safety net services um, that ensure individuals who have developmental disabilities and co-occurring um, behavioral, mental health, and medical needs um, are gaining access to an array of services across their lifespan that, that provide a real continuum of care. Um, and our safety net initiative um, continuum of care includes a number of programs that I'm going to talk about today, um, ranging from the preventative crisis, preventative support services um, all the way up to uh, acute crisis services. Um, and the development of these services and the safety net initiative in general has been um, strongly informed by our stakeholder uh, groups, uh, which include uh, individuals um, served by regional centers, their family members, uh, regional center staff, um, various professionals, and, and other advocacy groups. Um, and these groups have been um, providing a lot of feedback to the department to help us develop different strategies um, to build capacity of our safety net workforce uh, and also identify new models or services that we could develop uh, to help support individuals. Um, who need those. And this stakeholder process has resulted in uh, the development of a series of safety net plans uh, that the department has published um, beginning in 2017. Uh, and then with our most recent safety net plan, uh, we just published uh, January 10th uh, of this year, 2023. Um, so you can actually access uh, that plan on our website. The link is here on the slide. Um, and the plan includes information um, not only about the stakeholder process, um, but also recent investments. The department has made a significant amount of data about individuals with complex support needs uh, and then the department's plans for uh, the future. So I encourage you to take a look at that plan. Um, a lot of really great information there. So now I'm going to walk you through some examples of our continuum of services um, so one um, major initiative that we have been recently funding uh, is the START model. 
Um, the START model is a person-centered, positive supports program, uh, trauma-informed for individuals who are served by regional centers who are ages six and up. Um, and this is for individuals um, who may be experiencing crisis, um, who may be at risk for experiencing crisis, um, or maybe at risk of losing um, their, their current placement um, in the community. Um, individuals are referred to the START team um, from the regional center. Uh, and this team provides 24-hour crisis uh, response, uh, very intensive case coordination. Um, there's therapeutic coaching where um, the START coaches will go to the individual's home, um, their school, their workplace, wherever um, education is needed um, for the individual to learn coping skills or for their family or staff um, to learn techniques to help the individual um, maintain stability. Um, and the START teams are also um, working to build capacity within their community. Um, they do this through cross-system linkages where they link with other system partners um, like hospitals, uh, the county behavioral health, um, different providers uh, to build capacity um, and to share uh, the workload. Uh, and then they're also doing community education to build expertise among the providers uh, across the state. Um, so uh, this is a relatively new initiative. Um, we, we began um, expanding the START model in the state uh, in 2019. And as of this year, um, we now have 15 teams that are either in operation or will be taking referrals within the next few months. Um, the map on the right here with the colored um, shaded areas, those are the areas of the state that have a START team. Um, and I know this is maybe a little small um, for some of you to read the counties, uh, but you can access that map on the Center for START Services website and the link is here on the slide. Now, another uh, aspect of our safety net continuum is intensive transition services. And these are services for individuals who are moving from very highly restrictive settings um, back into the community. And this includes um, people who are at institutions for mental diseases or at our state-operated um, Porterville Developmental Center Secure Treatment Program. Uh, and these services um, are essentially like wrap service for these individuals. Um, they offer a team that provides risk assessments. They're doing um, incredibly comprehensive person-centered planning for the individual. Um, they're doing training for the individual, their family, staff members, uh, and supporting the person um, before the transition happens, during the transition, and then afterwards to make sure that they maintain stability as they uh, move back to the community. Um, currently, our um, intensive indiv individualized transition um, program for individuals uh, stepping out of our secure treatment program is operated by YAI. Um, they're based in the Central Valley area, which is close to Porterville. Um, and then uh, the uh, ITS service for individuals um, transitioning out of the IMDs um, or other highly restrictive settings um, is provided by Ameriki, um, which is a statewide provider. They have regional offices um, near um, uh, Sacramento and then the San Gabriel Pomona Valley area. Um, so those are our ITS services. Um, we also have uh, residential services that we've been developing um, for a number of years now. 
Um, and we have two uh, models um, for these homes that I'm gonna tell you about. Um, so we have our community crisis homes or our CCHs and then enhanced behavioral support homes or EBSHs. These are both um, homes that are in the community um, within typical neighborhoods. They uh, tend to be you know, three to five bed homes. Um, these homes uh, all have comprehensive rate structures um, and, and the individual is gonna have uh, a rate that's based on their specific staffing um, and support needs. So there's a high level of individualization for the people um, who live in these homes. There's um, enhanced case coordination and program planning for the individual. Um, so a lot of effort goes into creating a program um, that really uh, uh, meets all of an individual's needs, uh, not only within the home, but also activities in the community. Um, or if it's uh, a child or adolescent, um, coordination with uh, the education system. So either public or non-public schools um, so that they're receiving their educational programming. Uh, and then each individual also has coordinated mental health services as part of their program plan. Um, now, the main difference between our community crisis homes and our enhanced behavioral supports homes are um, the enhanced behavior support homes are, are intended to be a forever home. So an individual would move into one of these with the understanding that they will be there uh, forever or a very long period of time. Um, whereas our community crisis homes are really meant for individuals who are experiencing a crisis. Uh, and these are meant to be time limited. So an individual would stay there about a year or less uh, until they become stabilized and can um, either return to their previous home or um, to a new home in the community that's a little less restrictive. Um, and so those are the two main differences um, between those programs. Um, and currently we have uh, 71 enhanced behavioral support homes across the state with 43 more homes in development right now. And then we have 28 um, community crisis homes across the state with 10 more in development currently. So we've really ramped up the capacity um, of these homes um, and we continue to build them uh, to meet the, the capacity needs of individuals uh, across the state who need this level of care. We also have um, a few of those homes that have been specialized for uh, different populations. Um, so previously I mentioned that intensive transition service for individuals either transitioning from uh, an institution for mental disease or the secure treatment program. We also have specialized um, homes for those populations um, that serve as a step down into the community. Um, so we have three um, four bed homes in the Central Valley area for um, individuals transitioning out of the secure treatment program. And then we have four four bed homes um, across the state for individuals who are transitioning out of the institutions for mental disease. And these are really meant um, as a, a temporary way to step the individual down from that really high level of restrictive care um, to uh, a community care uh, and programming that um, will make it be more successful for them to then transition back into their home community um, where they can be um, fully integrated and safe. Now we're also developing um, community crisis homes for children and adolescents. Um, and we currently have five of these, they're four bed homes. Um, we have them located uh, around 
um, Alta California Regional Center, Valley Mountain Regional Center, Westside Regional Center in Los Angeles, San Diego Regional Center, and Regional Center of the East Bay. Um, and these are uh, quite new. They've just come online uh, within the last year or so. Um, and they are serving um, children and adolescents who are experiencing crisis. Now, I want to mention our uh, work on the system of care. So in 2018, the state passed Assembly Bill 2083 or AB 2083. Um, this is a bill that established uh, statewide requirements to serve um, youth in foster care who've experienced severe trauma. Um, this bill required the development of memorandums of understanding or MOUs um, for every county in the state. Um, the MOUs were required to uh, integrate practices and care across all of the systems that uh, are involved in uh, caring for youth in foster care. Um, so they were required to establish interagency leadership teams um, that included child welfare, the regional centers, county offices of education, probation, the county behavioral or mental health, uh, and the federally recognized tribes. Uh, and these teams work together um, to establish processes for information sharing, um, screening, access to care, um, child and family teaming, um, planning for services and supports, um, uh, working on placements for youth uh, in foster care, among um, a number of other activities. And that was really um, one of the main uh uh, requirements of the bill, um, but there are a, a couple of other pieces that I think have also been um, really incredible to see roll out. Um, so the state has created a state joint interagency resolution team. This is a state level team that provides technical assistance to all of the counties and all of the relevant partners serving youth in foster care. Um, these teams um, have been working really tirelessly um, to solve um, problems and issues uh, and navigate um, system access for youth um, all over the state. Um, our state partners are also doing a systematic uh, gap analysis, um, looking at the types of placements available for youth, um, services, and any other issues that need to be resolved at a state level. And they've been developing um, a really comprehensive multi-year plan to increase capacity to serve this population. Um, so, um, what are we doing um, within the department around this issue? Um, well, we have um, our system of care specialist, Christine Bagley, um, an incredible champion for foster youth with disabilities. Um, she has been um, really spearheading this initiative, not only for our department, but also with our other state partners. She's leading the team um, at our department in this work. Um, and she's helping to coordinate with 15 um, regional center staff who are also um, working around the system of care work. Um, and uh, these, these staff all together have been participating in the systems of care uh, technical assistance. They've been working on the development of those MOUs. Um, they're providing support to other regional center staff and providers um, to make sure that youth with complex um, needs uh, who are served by child welfare are getting access to all of the services and supports that they need. Um, and uh, they've been really working at a state level to think of strategies uh, to improve what we're doing. Um, and one of the really exciting um, and, uh, projects that has come out of their work uh, is the development of what we call our dual agency homes. 
And these are homes for um, youth who are served by the regional centers and also served by child welfare or are at risk of being served by child welfare. Um, and we we're building these uh, dual agency homes under the same model of homes that I just mentioned a couple slides ago. So there would be two community crisis homes and two uh, enhanced behavioral support homes that are going to be um, specifically for these children who are regional center served and also um, child welfare at risk of um, being served with uh, served by child welfare. Um, these homes are located uh, in the regional center of East Bay and San Diego regional center uh, catchment areas. So um, one community crisis home and one enhanced behavioral support home in the north and then the same in the south. Um, but those will be open um, for youth statewide. Um, so a youth from any regional center who's a foster youth could um, potentially access those homes um, if they need that. All right. And then finally, um, sort of touching on the, the far uh, end of our uh, continuum is our state operated STAR program. Um, this is a, an acute crisis stabilization program that's operated um, by our department. So state staff, um, we have we initially uh, were running STAR out of the developmental centers, um, but we've been transitioning um, into homes within the community. Um, across the state. So we currently have homes um, in Vacaville. Um, we have one home um, serving adults, 18 and up. We have one home serving adolescents. Uh, and then a third home, um, unfortunately, um, burned down in a wildfire um, back in August of 2020. Um, so we have rebuilt that home and we'll be opening it um, within the next few months um, to serve children. Uh, in the central in the Central Valley area, um, we have one home open um, in Springville ser serving adolescents. Um, we have a second home that's um, in development uh, in Porterville that will be serving adults. Uh, and then down south in Costa Mesa, we have one home serving adolescents and another home serving adults. Um, now these are um, really high level uh, person-centered residential services for individuals experiencing severe acute crisis. Um, the ultimate goal is to uh, stabilize the individual and return them back to their long-term community living. And this is a time-limited service. So an individual can stay in the STAR program up to 13 months. Um, so really, really the goal is to get back home um, into a stable, uh, stable environment. Um, our STAR teams also operate our CAST teams, our crisis assessment stabilization teams. So in our three STAR locations, we're also operating CAST. Um, and these are um, more like mobile crisis services that provide um, really high level of assessments for individuals. Um, these teams do training and supports for individuals experiencing crisis. Um, they also will train and support family members or staff. Uh, and then they also work to connect the individual to services um, within their home area. And so these services are available to individuals uh, experiencing crisis or who may be at risk of losing their um, current community living option. Um, and uh, anyone served by a regional center could be referred to this service. So now I'm going to pass it back to Dr. Lucy, who's going to share uh, about uh, one of our main um, funding opportunities around mental health. 
Thank you. Uh, so I'm now going to talk about the Mental Health Services Act funding for regional centers, and that is MHSA. And I've given you the website link so that you can, um, you know, uh, investigate some further. So uh, some background. Uh, MHSA was approved by voters in November 2004 to allocate funds to assist counties and state agencies. It's designed to expand and transform California's behavioral health system to better serve individuals with and at risk for serious mental health issues and also to support their families. So DDS uh, allocates funding through MHSA over three fiscal years. And this funding is given to regional centers who partner with local mental health agencies and other stakeholders. There's a total of $740,000 given each fiscal year, and it's to develop and implement innovative projects that support consumers. Uh, so we are in cycle five, but we are about to end cycle five and initiate cycle six. As a matter of fact, proposals are going to be due for cycle six, five o'clock on March 17th. And in partnership with key stakeholders, DDS will then select projects that meet requirements to award projects that uh, in the spring of 2023 and launching these projects in July of 2023 with an end date of June of 2026. So just to give you some examples of the current Cycle 5 MHSA uh, funded projects through DDS, we have peer, peer links through San Diego Regional Center. So in collaboration with NAMI, uh, San Diego Regional Center provides mental health services to consumers age 14 and older with developmental disabilities. It serves Imperial County. And uh, you can see the breakdown in terms of fiscal year of the amount is awarded, awarded uh, the project and support June 30th of this year. South, Los Angeles, South Central Los Angeles Regional Center has Children's Collaborative Mental Health Project. And in partnership with Kendron Community Mental Health Center, the project provides person-centered mental health assessment and referrals to consumers ages 10 through 17 that are duly diagnosed and are at risk of developing a mental uh, health disorder. It serves South Central Los Angeles, and then you can see the breakdown of the award per fiscal year. Redwood Coast Regional Center is the third uh, of the projects. It's Family and Supports Together, FAST in collaboration with several local agencies like Easter Seals and North Coast Nurture Center. They target improving social and emotional development in children birth to age five. And you can see the breakdown of the fiscal years and it serves Mendocino, Lake Humboldt and Del Norte counties. So MHSA funding builds on what works it is DDS is one of 12 agencies that receives funding through MHSA. Now, the vast majority of the funding, most funding goes to county mental health agencies. Um, however, uh, you know, in terms of the funding that DDS receives, 
DDS encourages regional centers to develop local capacity to serve individuals with dual diagnoses, that is, individuals with developmental disorders and co-occurring mental health diagnosis, and funds uh, lo building local capacity uh, with the potential to benefit consumers in the form of enhanced services, technical assistance, training of staff and stakeholders, and promoting interagency collaboration that leads to improved access to mental health services. Another program I want to briefly talk to you about is the American Rescue Plan Act. Uh, DDS is currently funding two regional center pilot projects through ARPA, uh, which promote family wellness. Far Northern Regional Center and Valley Mountain Regional Center are funded through September 30th uh, to provide their uh, projects. These projects are designed to assist families when their child receives a diagnosis of a developmental disorder or if the child has been found eligible for early start. And supports include counseling, building networks of peer support, and warm handoffs to applicable resources. Uh, the funding is focused on the families of children who are early start eligible or have a known developmental disorder. Uh, and the, this would include services for children with disabilities, but also their parents and their siblings. Unlike other programs, this takes a whole family approach. I want to turn the program back to Dr. Libero to bring us home. Okay, so quickly, a couple other uh, funding opportunities. Uh, the department uh, runs our uh, disparities funds or grants program. This is an $11 million grant program annually um, given out to uh, regional centers and community-based organizations um, for projects that are focused on uh, culturally and linguistically responsive uh, services for individuals served through the regional centers. Um, in uh, this most recent cycle, the department was actually awarded an additional $11 million um, from the state, so $22 million total for um, our most recent grants program. Um, uh, this isn't a program that's specifically focused on mental health. Um, however, when there's the intersection of uh, mental health and uh, disparities, a uh, project could qualify for these funds. And uh, we actually had two recent projects that were funded focusing on mental health access. Um, so this past cycle, uh, East Los Angeles Regional Center was awarded uh, uh, funds um, for mental health navigation for Chinese and Hispanic families. Um, and then uh, the year before that, uh, there was also a project in the Bay Area with integrated community services that um, was uh, targeting um, crisis intervention services for bilingual and bicultural communities. Um, so this is one opportunity um, that may be of interest to some of you if you have projects that could um, help uh, to sort of close the service access gap for different groups across the state. Um, and then another opportunity we have is the Children and Youth Behavioral Health Initiative. Um, this is uh, an initiative out of the California Health and Human Services Agency. It's a multi-billion dollar investment um, around access to mental and behavioral health for children, um, adolescents, and young adults in the state. Um, this initiative um, is going to be vastly increasing access to services 
um, for behavioral health through the school systems, as well as a massive online platform that's going to be accessible to children and their families. Um, but this initiative also includes uh, a large number of grants um, that are going out to increase provider capacity and expertise, um, as well as expanding um, the use of evidence-based practices to treat individuals uh, statewide. So the link uh, to this initiative is here on the slide, and I encourage you to take a look at that um, if you may have projects that could fit um, those funding streams as well. So I think we're just about out of time here, um, but thank you for listening as uh, Dr. Lucy and I covered our uh, continuum of services and some of our recent initiatives and funding mechanisms. Um, I think at this time we're opening it up for questions, um, but I do encourage you to reach out. You can either email uh, Dr. S. Rulu or myself with any questions or comments after, um, or you're welcome to email our safety net email address at the department with any um, broad safety net questions you might have. Thank you. Well, thank you very much uh, to uh, Dr. Esselu and Dr. Libero for uh, a very timely and comprehensive update. Um, and so um, what I'm going to do is just lump together some of the questions that um, uh, people have posed. And so I think there may be a little bit of confusion about the homes that you have de described. And uh, my, my understanding is that specifically uh, these are for mental and behavioral health issues that arise in children and youth who already have a developmental disability? Yes. So our, the enhanced behavioral support homes and the community crisis homes, they are for individuals who are eligible for regional center services. Um, so uh, they would have to have a qualifying disability um, under the Lanterman Act uh, to, to be referred to one of those homes. Um, they may not necessarily need a mental health diagnosis, um, you know, to to um, be referred to something like an enhanced behavioral support home. It's really for someone who might um, have behavioral challenges, um, not necessarily a mental health diagnosis. Um, and what happens if that particular client or patient has a medical complexity? Are the homes able to address uh, the the same issues and? Um, children and youth who may not be medically completely stable? Um, in some cases, yes. Um, it, it would be possible um, to have uh, a nurse um, who comes to the home to do some uh, attendance of medical needs, um, but generally they're not meant for individuals who are medically fragile. Um, so for those individuals, um, we offer our ARF cushions um, so these are really highly um, medically advanced homes um, with with skilled nursing on staff. Um, and I see there's there's a question about those homes um, here too. Um, is there any plan for medically fragile pediatrics patients similar to our cushion, but for under eighteen? And actually, yes, our department has been working on um, a group cushion. Um, which would be a similar model, but for uh, children or adolescents who have complex um, medical challenges on top of their uh, developmental disabilities. So we're um, we're currently uh, in the works to develop those. So stay tuned. Um, so another question, I think, let's see, one person wrote, since EBSH doesn't provide mental health services, only ABA model, who will serve youth who need that level of care? 
That's a good question. Um, these homes should be coordinating mental health services. Um, it may be through the county behavioral health or uh, the individual's health plan. That should be part of their program planning. Um, and the team should be coordinating that care. Um, it may not be the, the staff in the home, um, but, but they should certainly be, be um, coordinating that care for the individual. And I, I don't want to put uh, both of you in the spot, but if there are issues around access or wait lists or things like that, um, who 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 can providers or others contact to um, help things uh, improve? Yeah, that's a a really significant challenge. I think um, across the state, not even for this population, there are a lot of um, staffing issues, um, a lot of capacity issues around our behavioral and mental health system. Um, and we're certainly seeing the strain um, for providers who can serve people with developmental disabilities. Um, that's a definite challenge. Uh, and, and we see that uh, essentially statewide. Um, so it's a hard question to answer um, because I know that that's uh, something that's that's really difficult and has been exacerbated by um, the pandemic. Um, but uh, I would hope individuals are reaching out to their service coordinators or the regional center clinical team. Um, those teams should be working to coordinate care. Um, and if there are ch challenges beyond that, I encourage you to reach out to our department. Um, we have um, our regional center liaison team and our clinical services team who are happy to, um, to hear your concerns and do our best to resolve. So um, I think there are just a couple of more questions that I know we're heading towards uh, uh, lunch break. Uh, I, I think one person had asked about um, when uh, deciding what level of disability is um, uh, makes someone eligible for uh, regional center services. Um, when the term substantial disability is used, um, I suspect that that relates to the 25% um, uh, disability? Well, that's that's for early start mm -hmm. is 25%. And for substantial disability for the um, for Lanterman eligibility, uh, it, there, it is measured in terms of the use of adaptive behavior scales. So uh, when there's an assessment that's done by a psychologist as part as an IQ test is given, if there's a suspicion the person may be on the uh, spectrum, uh, testing is done in terms of autism, uh, but also adaptive behavior is measured. And according to the tool, that that would be, you know, they define significant disability in terms of how somebody performs on an adaptive behavior measure. So it sounds like there's a standard system for determining that. Well, there's, a, there's no specific metric that has been assigned to what we mean by substantial disability. It's really a clinical determination uh, based on the psychologist who's evaluating and the eligibility panel's consideration of all information. Thank you so very much uh, for an amazing presentation. So much information. I think it will take me a, a days to process this. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.